Well, good evening, everyone. We're happy to see you tonight. Let's have a word of prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we can meet once again to study the book of Daniel. We pray, Lord, for the infilling of your Holy Spirit, that you will be here in our presence, and that we will know that our God lives and that he speaks to us through his word. Bless us as we study together. Give us understanding. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, as we begin chapter 5, once again, for the sake of the recording, we're not going according to the chapters as they are in the the scripture. Last time, we did chapter 8 of Daniel, and Daniel once again uses the repeat and expand method of approach to this. He uses the principle of repeat and expand once again in chapter 7 and 8, and only this time he did it in different animals. Now, in chapter 7, he dealt more with the political empires, but when we got to chapter 8, he started to use animals that were used to the sanctuary service, the ram, the goat, etc. And Daniel is again fascinated with that little horn, and that little horn that grew its power up to heaven. The earthly and the heavenly sanctuary services were introduced with the time prophecy of the 2300 years. That brings us up to the beginning of the judgment or the great Yom Kippur. And that's where we left off in chapter 8. Now we're going back to chapter 5 because all of that took place under the Babylonian kings. Now we've got to bump off, if I may say that, the Babylonian kings, before we can get ready for the, the Medo-Persian kings. And so chapter 5 brings the demise to the Babylonian empire. And as we enter chapter 5, Babylon itself is called the city of confusion. The word Babel means confusion. When we talk about a person babbling, they're, they're talking, but you really, they're not making much, a lot of sense. When we come to chapter 5, Belshazzar is on the throne at this time. He is the, the king regent. He and his father ruled together. His father went into retirement, and he's the one that's actually sitting on the throne at this time. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine before the thousands. It's very interesting that Nebuchadnezzar, he, uh, here he was a mighty king who was humbled by God. And one would think that Belshazzar would follow that example, but not so. Instead, here he is having this big feast. Actually, what it was was an orgy. That's really what he was having. And he had all these drunken lords around him. Look at verse 2. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the the golden and silver vessels, which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem. 
that the king and his princes, his wives, his concubines might drink therein. Now, you've got to remember here when it says that Nebuchadnezzar was his father, that's like saying George Washington is the father of our country. Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's ancestor. He was likely his grandfather rather than his father. But nonetheless, they, we even today talk about our forefathers. And why did he do this? Notice that he was already drunk when he was calling for these vessels. He, like Nebuchadnezzar, was a heathen king. Nebuchadnezzar was a heathen. He was a pagan. So was Belshazzar. Under Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king believed that his god had defeated the god the God of Israel, only to find out that the God of Israel was supreme over Babylon and the Babylonian king. Here, we find Belshazzar actually is trying to deny all of this. How is he doing it? He's calling for the very vessels that were used in the temple service. He brings them in and he drinks wine out of them. Now, that's very significant because when we look in the New Testament, it talks about the wine of Babylon. It talks about the woman who holds the cup in her hand. Here there's parallels between these. We'll touch on that some other time. Jacques Ducan, who was one of my favorite professors when I was at the university, he says this in his book, Secrets of Daniel. Belshazzar was well acquainted with the great monarch who died. According to Babylonian chronicles, Nebuchadnezzar died at the ripe old age of 104. Now, I mentioned to you he died probably about the age 65. I was in error. I want to correct that. Uh, Actually, I think I said between 62 and 65. It was actually King Darius who died about the age 62. And he may have been as old as 65, but generally they think 62. According to the Babylonian Chronicles, good old King Nebuchadnezzar lived to be 104. Now, that depends whether or not you rely on that. But he died in 562 BCE. By then, Belshazzar, his grandson, was probably about 26 years of age, and he was the head of the Babylonian army. Now, that doesn't say he was king. Somebody else was ruling. But he was, he was in charge of the army when his grandfather died. And we find that 20 years later, Babylon will fall. So uh, Belshazzar, about this time, could be about 46 years old at the time this thing collapses. Our story takes place in the evening before the capture of Babylon by King Cyrus, and that was in the year 539 BCE. That's a pretty well-established date. Only about 20 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, the great kingdom that he had built up, that he thought would last a thousand years, it's crumbled within 30 years. Moreover, Belshazzar is, through his mother's lineage, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. 
a fact that is pointed out seven times in this chapter. In verses 2, 11, 13, 18, and 22, it refers back that Nebuchadnezzar uh, was his ancestor. So we find that Nebuchadnezzar was not, I mean, Belshazzar was not ignorant of his family history. He was alive when his grandfather was. He was alive when his grandfather went insane. He was alive when his grandfather reformed and praised the God of Israel, the very people, the God of Judah, that that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, that Belshazzar is denying here. Look at verse 3. Then they brought the golden vessels, which were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives, his concubines, they drank out of them. They got drunk out of them. This is a direct insult against the, the temple of God. It's a great insult against God himself. You don't challenge God. That's what he was doing. Nebuchadnezzar had humbled his heart, but here Belshazzar is arrogant. He's very arrogant, and his arrogance will show up again as we go further. Look at verse 4. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, brass, iron, wood, and stone. He had a chance to worship the God of heaven, the creator God. Instead, he wants to worship stone gods and metal gods that are made with human hands. Look at 5.5. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Now, obviously... He didn't see the whole arm. It seems like he only saw from maybe just above the wrist down. That's usually referred to as the hand. Sometimes they refer to the wrist as a part of the hand. So it's interesting that whenever God writes anything with his own finger, his own hand, it's connected with judgment. When God, well, some of the instances where God actually wrote with his own hand, We see here, this is talking about a judgment that's going to take place. When Jesus knelt down and he wrote in the sand, he was writing the sins of the accusers, which meant they were going to come into judgment. And they quickly got out of there as fast as they could. We find that when he wrote on the tables of stone with his own finger, these went into the Ark of the Covenant and became the law by which people will be judged in the final judgment. And so we find that this uh, writing with the finger was very important. Notice it was written on the wall, the plaster wall. Well, if he can can write with his finger in in, uh, the rock of a mountain, why can't he do it in the plaster of a wall? And the interesting part is that Belshazzar sees it. This is not a vision. This is not a dream. This is something literal that takes place. And as Belshazzar looks up, he sees this writing across the wall. He sees actually the hand doing it. And 
according to Isaiah, it said that his knees or his loins would be loosened and his knees would knock together. He'd be so tight. Uh, I mean, so uh, uh, shaky and, and nervous at what he saw. I think I would too, wouldn't you? I mean, that's rather weird. Look at 5.6. Then the king's countenance was changed. He was very proud and arrogant before. Now he's, uh, you know, and his thoughts troubled him. They should trouble him. His thoughts troubled him because he knew that that, what was written on that wall was important. And it had something to do with him and his kingdom. But what? He couldn't tell because he couldn't read it. And it says here, so that the joints of his loins were loosened. Or loosed. That's what I mean when I said he, his legs shook together. His knees bumped one another. And his knees smote one against another. Isaiah had predicted this, by the way. Look at uh, 5.7. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, you know, all the wise men that uh, almost got eliminated under Nebuchadnezzar. But this may be a new generation of wise men that are coming in, but they weren't any wiser than the, the others. <clears throat> and the king spake and said unto the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever can read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a, a chain of gold about his neck, and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. Now, for most people, that would be good incentive to read it, but not for Daniel. And we'll see why. Look at 5.8. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing, nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his count did I go backwards or is that no? And his his countenance was changed in him, and his lord his lords were astonished or astonished. The the king looked worried. He didn't look like he was in command, and they're all trying to figure out what is that. I know it's important. I mean, that's spooky when you see a hand writing on the wall. They were all shook up by this, and I imagine that it made quite a commotion. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lord, came into the banquet house, and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. Now the queen came in. Who is the queen? Well, it can't be the queen because she was in the hall with him. She was in there getting drunk along with him. It says that his, his wives and his concubines were in there. Then who is this that comes in? She apparently had not been a part of this party. She had been elsewhere. And there's reason to believe that the queen who came in was actually the queen mother. It was his mother, the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And she comes in, and notice she's the one that, that says, remember Daniel. And she tries to calm her son down and said, don't get all shook up. 
there's somebody who can tell that to you. And in verse 11, there is a man in the kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. How did she know that? She was there when her father went out of his head. She knew. And in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom make the wisdom of the God, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him. Whom the king, Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. All these fellows you're asking to interpret that, there's one who was above them who could do it when they couldn't. And you're not asking him to come in? Now, I want you to know that Belshazzar was not ignorant of Daniel being around. He knew about him. He did not want Daniel to come in. Why? Because he was mocking Daniel's God. He was using the temple vessels when he shouldn't be. His own conscience may have been convicting him of his wrongdoing. Look at verse 12. For as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing hard sentences and dissolving of doubts were found in the same Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So she's the one that gets him to call Daniel to come in. Here again, Jacques Ducan brings out an interesting point. First off, you've got Belshazzar meets Belteshazzar. Basically, they're the same name with just a slight variation of it. And notice what Ducan says. Cornered by the queen, Belshazzar has no choice but to summon the ancient Hebrew prophet. He could have done so sooner. Daniel is still alive, and his reputation has not faded into oblivion, especially since he bears the same name as the king. If the king had not consulted Daniel, it's because he prefers to avoid him. Belshazzar is afraid of meeting with uh, Belteshazzar. Interestingly enough, the king does not want to call him by that name. Belshazzar does not call Daniel Belteshazzar, even though Nebuchadnezzar did. He uses his Hebrew name. Belshazzar pretends that he doesn't know this man who has the same name. His embarrassment indicates his hypocrisy. And notice what happens when Daniel does come in. It shows the arrogance of Belshazzar. It also shows Daniel's gumption and Daniel's uh, opinion of this young man, or not-so-young man at this point. Look at verse 13. Then was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spake and said unto Daniel, Art thou that Daniel, which art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Jewry? Now, you talk about arrogance. 
Daniel's been running around the palace for years. And he acts like he doesn't know him. And then he says, are you the same Daniel that I think I heard about once or twice? Now, aren't you that slave, that servant that came out of that defeated nation of Israel, that uh, Judah? See, he's putting Daniel down. And he's put Daniel's God down. Now he's putting God's prophet down. And, oh yeah, I, I think I remember hearing about you. I have even heard of thee, verse 14, that the spirit of the gods, no, he doesn't say God, but the spirit of the gods is in thee. And that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. 15. And now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known unto me the interpretation thereof. But they could not show the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of thee, here again, I've heard rumor of you, that thou canst make interpretations and dissolve doubts. Now, if, notice that word if, that conditional if, he's, he's again showing doubt that Daniel can do it. Now, if thou canst read the writing and make known unto me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about thy neck, and thou shalt be the third ruler of the kingdom. Basically what he's doing is he's bribing Daniel to give him the interpretation, and it better be the interpretation he wants to hear. And notice, it says that he would dress him in scarlet. You know, I can think of a kingdom where the princes and the officials dress in scarlet and purple. A modern Babylon, as well as here, an ancient Babylon. And notice a chain of gold. Have you ever seen uh, pictures of England during the time of Henry VIII? The Secretary of State or Prime Minister, he would have a chain around his neck Uh, that indicated that that was his status as prime minister or secretary of state. So basically, he would put this around Daniel and say, there, I'm making you the third ruler. Now, why the third ruler? Well, technically, the first ruler is his father, who was out in the desert running around uh, in retirement. Belshazzar would be the second ruler. And then, if Daniel could interpret this, he would be the third ruler. But Daniel, when King Nebuchadnezzar was out eating grass, chances are Daniel was ruling the country. He was already probably second ruler. Now, it could be that he had uh, his infant son, uh, Emil Murdoch, he could have been there, but chances are he would have been uh, a minor at the time, but at least not able to take over the kingdom. So Daniel, if nothing else, he had already been third ruler. This isn't much of a promotion for him. And besides, 
when you know that the enemy is rapping on the front door and they've got their swords ready to run everybody through, that's not the time to be advertising that you're the prime minister, you see. That wasn't much incentive to Daniel. But even beyond that, he knew God would deliver him. But look at verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king. Now, the king was arrogant. Not only toward God, he was arrogant toward Daniel. And Daniel cuts him right down. He, he cuts him down to size. Then Daniel answered and said before the king. Now, Daniel, as we looked at him with Nebuchadnezzar, he was always very tactful. He was very polite in addressing the king, even when he had to rebuke him. But he doesn't even bother with the tact here. Let thy gifts be to thyself. And your majesty, keep your gifts and give your rewards to somebody else. I'll read the writing unto the king and make known unto him the interpretation, but nothing. I'll still interpret it. You don't owe me anything. He didn't want anything from the king. Again, Dukan, he talks about this reprimand. Daniel's answer is stern. Accustomed as we are to Daniel's usual tact and respect, his harsh answer surprises us. You may keep your rewards for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. But Daniel's anger does not result only from this latest incident. Belshazzar's wrong goes much deeper than his current silly bribery incident. He says in verse 22, but you, his son, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. You knew what your grandfather went through and how the Lord humbled him. And you didn't humble yourself before the Lord. How does God feel today about a haughty spirit, about a person who uh, is too big for the britches? The Lord has to take them down. I can't help but think, as I think I mentioned before, about the Titanic and Captain Smith uh, on board that ship. He said to someone who inquired why there were so few lifeboats, he said, this ship is unsinkable. And then he said, even God himself cannot sink this ship. Didn't take long to take a little bit of an iceberg, or a big bit of an iceberg, and it ripped the side in the Titanic. Titanic's down in the bottom of the ocean. And Captain Smith went with it. Why? He was arrogant. He was defying. He was challenging God. That's what Belshazzar was doing. Verse 18. O thou king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. He's the one that brought this to him. Look at verse 19. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he slew. And whom he would, he kept alive. Plain words, he had life and death power over everybody. And whom he would set up and whom he would put down. He would set up kings, take down kings. Because he was the emperor above them all. Look at verse 20. But 
when his heart was lifted up, when he got too big for his britches like you are, King Belshazzar, his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Notice now it says they. They took his glory from him. Isn't it interesting that before God invokes punishment, he oftentimes uses the word us, we. Sodom and Gomorrah, before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, let us go down. Before he destroyed the Tower of Babel, he said, let us go down. You see, and each time he does this, even in the Garden of Eden, he says, now that they've eaten of this tree, they will be like us, knowing good and evil, right and wrong. They will have a tendency now to choose that which is evil. What was God doing? Before he passed judgment, he was not arbitrary. We have the Father, Son, Holy Spirit working together. And he may have even communicated with uh, Gabriel and whoever else needed to know. And notice in verse 21, and he was driven from the sons of men and his heart. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar now. He was driven from the sons of men and his heart was made like the beast and his dwelling with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. How long? till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men and that he appointed over it whomsoever he will. So he went insane until he learned his lesson. And then God could reinstate him. But you know, King Belshazzar, you never really learned your lesson. You knew all this stuff. And you, you still didn't repent. Now, that's an interesting point because does God treat everybody the same in the judgment? Those who have more knowledge of what God's will is and they ignore it or they turn from it or they push it aside, they're actually held to a stricter standard than those who never heard about it in the first place. You can't, even if you go into a court today, if you're driving down the highway and uh, you see a stop sign or speed limit, 25 miles an hour, and you're going 60 miles an hour, and you go right through the stop sign, you can say, say in court, but I didn't see it. And the policeman will say to you, or the judge will say to you, it doesn't matter. Ignorance is no excuse. It's posted. You should have been looking for it. That's why you have a driver's license. Look at verse 22. And thou his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart. Though you knew all this, he could not plead ignorance. Look at verse 23. But hast lifted up thyself against the Lord. And Lord here is Yahweh in capital letters. The Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of his house before thee. And thou and thy lords, thy wives, thy concubines have drunk wine in them. And thou hast praised 
the gods of silver and gold, brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. You're praising all these gods using my God's vessels, and you're not even acknowledging my God. Dukan encloses a literal translation of what he was saying. And it says this, But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your breath and all your ways. He's the one that gives you life. He's the one that sustains and maintains your life. You know what that is? That's ingratitude. That's ingratitude. Do you realize that one of the sins that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for was, one was the lack of gratitude. They were not thankful to God for his blessings. Also, uh, in hospitality, they were, instead of uh, treating the strangers who came upon them, who came among them, they took advantage of them. So hospitality is in itself a ministry. It's an expectation. And we need to be thankful to God. How many times do we say, Lord, please give me this, give me that, give me the other thing. When, how often do we say, thank you, Lord, for this, that, and the other thing? How much more would God do for us if we expressed our thanks for what he's already done? Do you like giving gifts to people who never say thank you? If they give you, you give them a gift, they say, oh, I, I don't need that. Why don't you give me that? Well, you could have gotten me something else. Why don't you give me a Mercedes instead? You know? Or you say, hey, look, that's the last gift I've given you. Well, God gives us gifts every day, and we don't even thank him for it. So, he was willfully ignorant. And again, it is a Belshazzar then who knows, who now discards the creator for the idol of metal and of stone, which does not know. So the God who knows the future, he throws out. But these gods who know nothing are the ones he worships. The first action generates the second. He who rejects the God of creation will eventually fall back on idols, the work of his own or her own hands, and the image of one's own self. Such individuals become their own gods. Human beings are made to worship. There's a built-in mechanism within human beings to worship. And if they don't worship the God of heaven, they will worship something else, whether it be money, fame, fortune, whatever it is, which basically they end up worshiping themselves, making themselves gods. And so God wants us to willingly give him our allegiance. Look at verse 24. Then was the part of the hand sent from him. Now, it doesn't say the whole arm, but a part of the hand that did the writing was sent to him. And this writing was written. Now, it's interesting what was written. 
This is the writing that was written. Mini, mini, tikal, a parson. What does that mean? Why couldn't he read it? For one thing, they were speaking Babylonian. All right? Uh, this was written in Aramaic. It may have been a, an Aramaic. Aramaic is a, a cross between Hebrew and the Assyrian languages. And the Babylonians weren't familiar with that. There's another reason, too. You see, the Aramaic Hebrew, notice it has no vowels in it. And there's no separation between the words. Now look at these letters. N-M-B-R-D-N-M-B-R-D-W-G-D-N-D-D-V-D-D. Now, what does that sentence say? It could say anything you want it to say, pretty much, right? Depends on which vowels you stick in there and where you break it. But basically, your number, your days are numbered. They're numbered. You're found wanting, and your land is divided. Your kingdom is divided. That's what it, it translates into, a transliteration of it. So, meeny, meeny, tickle of Harson. See, we break it up and stick the vowels in it. They didn't. Notice, there's another meaning for this, too. There are several meanings for some of these words. For instance, the word meany. They're all related to commerce. All three of these words are related to commerce. A meany came from the word mina, which was 600 grams. Tikal, this was, uh, comes from the shekel, which was 10 grams. And a farson, or a farson, it came from mina, which is, it's a half a mina, which is 300 grams. So, what does this mean? Belshazzar gets the hint. It is the liquidation of the stock sale, and therefore the end of business. Plain what he's saying, your time's up, you're out of business, Belshazzar, and so are you Babylonians. Belshazzar was quite familiar with such a commercial jargon. In Babylon, buying and selling were the national pastime. That's why in the book of Revelation, it talks about Babylon buying and selling and uh, having commerce and merchandising with the nations. This was a, a favorite pastime in Babylon. Daniel will be even more explicit going back to the etymology of each word according to the biblical method of interpretation. Now, that's the commercial meaning of those words, but there's also a spiritual or biblical interpretation. Let's look at it. Meaning, it derives from the root that means to count, to assign, to determine. What did he say? Your, your days are numbered, right? Tikal comes from the root word meaning to weigh, another image pertaining to the commercial world. It says that you were found wanting. In plain words, you don't measure up to weight. What it's saying is, you're a fraud. That's what he's saying. It is also a language of judgment. If, if you're selling something and it isn't the proper weight, you can get yourself in trouble legally, can't you? Because you're a fraud. And then a parson, 
It derives from the root meaning to break up, to scatter. And it also has the implication of doing it with violence. So basically, what's he saying? He's saying, it has, your, your kingdom of Babylon has been judged. It's been weighed in the balances. It's, it's been determined that you're not up to the proper weight. And because of this, you're a fraud. And the kingdom's going to be taken away from you. It's going to be divided up among the, uh, the nations that will come in and take over after you. And that'll be done with violence. Did that happen? Yes, it did. Look at verse 26. It, he gives the interpretation right within the text. This is the interpretation of the thing. Meaning, God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it. He's all done counting. He's closing the books on Babylon. Tikal. Thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting, or you've come up short. Peres, now a parson is a plural of this. Thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persian. You can, you can see the word Persia as a part of that. And so it's being divided among them. It's interesting that there were four kings and the text itself kind of alludes to this in some of the language. But there were four kings between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who built the kingdom. Belshazzar blows it. In between, Emil Marduk. He's sometimes called Evil Merodach. And he reigned from 562 to 560 B.C. And that was Nebuchadnezzar's son. And he, he died quite young. You can see there, he only ruled for two years. Then Nereglaser, he took over. And he didn't reign terribly long. You know, uh, what is that? Four years? That he reigned. And his daughters, Nebuchadnezzar had daughters. Amon Merodach is the only son that I know of. And so the older daughter's uh, husband takes over. And then there was uh, Labashi uh, Marduk. He only reigned that one year, 556. And after him came Nebonidus or Nabonidus, whichever you pronounce. This was the husband of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's other daughter. He ruled from 556 to 539. And then, of course, in 539, Belshazzar, who was ruling with Nabonidus as co-regent, and then he takes over the government when daddy retires. He's on the throne when it finally falls. And so we find that the kingdom did not last the thousand years that Nebuchadnezzar had hoped. Verse 29. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet, and they put a chain of gold about his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him, that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. He said, I don't want it, but they gave it to him anyway. Uh, Obviously, you don't fight the king, because it could mean your head. So look at verse 30. It says, in that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain. 
while Daniel is getting promoted, coming in through the water channel, through the double doors that were left open, right into the palace and up into the room where this party was going on, came the forces of the Medes and Persians under King Cyrus. Notice what it says in Isaiah 44, 27 and 28. That said to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up the rivers. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Now notice, Isaiah is predicting this about King Cyrus 150 years before Cyrus is born. And he gives his name. He tells exactly what he would do. He said, you're going to dig a ditch, bypass the uh, river Euphrates. You're going to go under the, uh, the riverbed, the dry riverbed. You're going to go in through the dry riverbed. And he also, in another chapter, he says, I'll leave the two-leaf gates open for you. He went around checking all the doors. They're all locked except the two leave gates that are right in front of the palace. And so they go in through there. He says, after you take over Babylon, you're even going to be the one who's going to say the children of Israel can go back home to Jerusalem. After being in captivity for 70 years, you're going to free them. He was the Abraham Lincoln that would deliver the people from bondage. And not only that, but you will give them permission to rebuild Jerusalem and you will give them permission to build the foundation of the temple. Now there would be other decrees that would come under Darius. There would be another decree that will come under uh, Artaxerxes. And that's the one, the one under Artaxerxes, that the 2300-year prophecy uh, begins with in 457. And so we find that what Isaiah said literally and actually came true, right down to the, the two-leave gates being left open. Isaiah 45.1 Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the loins of kings. Now, what did Daniel just say happened to Belshazzar? It says his loins were loosened and his knees knocked together. And he said to open before him the two leave gates. That happened. And the gates shall not be shut. Is the Bible correct? This was written 150 years before the king was even born. Although King Cyrus was the military leader who brought down the Babylonian Empire, don't forget, he still had to rule the Medes and the Persians. He still was king over them. He was also conquering more territory. So what's he do? He leaves behind his uncle, Darius. Darius actually is not his name. His name was really Gabrius. 
The name Darius is an honorary title. And it means he who holds the scepter. And he says, Uncle Gabrius, I'm going to give you the scepter to rule over Babylon while I expand the kingdom. And notice ancient chronicles indicate that Gabrius, whom we know as Darius, the Mede, died a year and three weeks after the fall of Babylon. So he wasn't around long. And yet he's the one that Daniel has a lot of interaction in when we move to the uh, Medo-Persian kingdom, which we'll get into next week. And it says, thus explaining why Cyrus didn't, did not take the title of king of Babylon until a year later. He waits till his uncle is gone, and then he takes over Babylon and is considered the king of Babylon. Does that help to put it in uh, historical scope for you a little? Give you a little background on it. And so Daniel 5.31 comes to a conclusion. It says, And Darius the Median, or the Mede, took the kingdom, being about three score and two years old. A score is 20 years, three score is 60 and two. So he was 62 years old. And if he only lived a year and three weeks after the fall of Babylon, he was between 62 and 63 maybe as late as 65 when he died. So, it brings us to the end of chapter 5. The last of the Babylonian kings are behind us. Now we start moving forward with the Medes and the Persians. Next time, we're going to be going into chapter 9. But let's just review this chapter a bit. Belshazzar knew of Daniel and the service that he had rendered to the kingdom. And in a drunken orgy, the playboy king acted presumptuously and drank from the vessels of the temple in Israel, which was blasphemy. God wrote with his own finger the downfall of the kingdom. Daniel alone could foretell the writing. Babylon had filled its cup of iniquity and finally fell. The first kingdom of Babylon that's mentioned in Daniel 2 is now done. In plain words, the statue of Daniel 2 is decapitated. And we start moving down the rest of the body as, as it goes on. Okay? And we have a little quiz. But before we do, let's have a special prayer. Heavenly Father, as we see how these prophecies came literally true. It's unbelievable that anybody would ever doubt that God cannot foretell the future and that the scriptures are not indeed the word of God. For how could any human being not only foretell the name of a man who would rule an empire 150 years in advance, but actually tell exactly what he was going to do in conquering that kingdom and how he would be used by you. May our faith, our confidence in the word of God grow and may we know that our God rules. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, time for a quiz. Question number one. 
The last king of Babylon was whom? Spelling doesn't count. Question number two. What did the king see on the wall? Number three. The king was guilty of blasphemy, arrogance, pride, and idolatry. True or false? Number four. Daniel became the third ruler of Babylon. True or false? What power, number five, what power defeated the Babylonians or Babylon? Notice there's a dash there and two lines. Number six, a bonus point. Which prophet foretold the birth and the accomplishments of King Cyrus 150 years in advance? How many of you think you got them all right? Some of you have putting your hands up with the question mark behind them. <laughs> okay, let's look at them. The last king uh, of Babylon was Belshazzar. What did the king see on the wall? The finger of God writing. You could have the writing on the wall or the finger of God, whichever you wish, the hand of God. Number three, the king was guilty of blasphemy, arrogance, pride, and idolatry. That's true. Daniel, number four, did become the third ruler because they gave him the chain and the, the garment and everything else uh, and set him up. Number five, what power defeated Babylon? The Medo-Persians or Medes and Persians. Cyrus, one grandfather was a Mede, the other was a Persian, and he inherited both kingdoms. So they were the Medo-Persians when they, when they started out. That's why the hyphen is in there. And then number six, which prophet foretold the birth and accomplishments of the king in advance, 150 years in advance? It was Isaiah. Now how many of you got them all right? Good for you. Good for you. All right. Your homework assignment, you can read chapter five again. Next week, we're going into chapter 9. So, we still got a little history still, but we're moving more into the advanced part of the book. And please invite someone to join us. All right, let's have a word of prayer, and I'll let you all out of here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessings, and we thank you that we can meet together to study your word each week. And Lord, please give us a safe journey as we head home. For we ask it in our Savior's name. Amen. Good night. Shalom.